barbell players. We appreciate very much uh, the time that I know that you all put in to uh, give us a different way to worship Christmas this morning and to enjoy that. If you would, turn your in your Bibles to Micah chapter 5. Micah is in the Old Testament towards the very end. If you've reached Matthew, you went uh, a little bit too far. In fact, uh, if you're maybe new to, to Bible reading, you may want to look at the table of contents to be able to find it um, there in the front. Uh, it's a pretty pretty uncommon book to hear a message from, honestly. We, we typically don't do a lot out of Micah, um, in part because much of the message is written to Israel, and, and much of what Micah speaks of has already been accomplished. Though I think certainly we should take the time to, to do more with the prophets than what we probably typically do in, in the Sunday morning context. That being said, Micah gives us a great picture and a great, uh, great foreshadowing of, of the plan that, Jesus Christ, or that God had for, of Jesus Christ to come on a Christmas. And we cont- as we continue on in our sermon series, Preparing the Way, looking at how God painted a picture in the Old Testament for the things that were going to happen, for the coming of a Savior. And we started that in Genesis chapter 3, looking at how a curse had happened that Adam and Eve had rebelled against God and that because of that, that humanity fell under the curse of sin, a curse that we ourselves could not break, that all of earth was tainted by sin, not just humanity, but that even there in the beginning in the garden, God had began to unfold and began to prepare us as as people and, and all of humanity that he would not leave us in that state, but rather there would come a day when there would be the descendant of a woman foreshadowing the virgin birth and that that descendant would end the curse though it would come at great cost though it would come at at his own life and then last week we looked at Leviticus and how we have the day of atonement a day in the Jewish calendar that reminds us of our great the great weight of our sin and the, the extent and the depth of our sin and yet we see these two goats one that is used and its blood is used to cleanse us from our sin and another goat that's used to separate us from the sin a foreshadowing of the great sacrifice of Jesus Christ who was divinely chosen before the before even his birth to live a perfect life that he may cleanse us and that he may separate us from our sin and then this week we get a little bit more uh, maybe a more nuanced picture as the prophet Micah begins to explain what this is going to look like and, and gives us just a, a hint more detail about this Savior that, that God has been speaking of from the beginning of the word of the world. So hopefully by now you found Micah uh, chapter 5. And so if you would stand with us that we may honor the reading of God's word this morning. Micah chapter 5 verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. Therefore, He shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. 
Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for your promises. Your many promises that you made to your people Israel, that you have kept in abundance, kept perfectly. We thank you for the many promises that you make towards us. Promises of great mercy and great grace. Promises to restore and to reconcile. Promises of healing. And we thank you that you keep those promises. Though not always in the timing that we would think, but in your perfect timing and in your perfect will and in your perfect plan. Father, I pray as we look at this promise that we find here in Micah, as we look at this prophecy, Lord, that we would take time to marvel at it and, and to think about what it means and, and what it is, the accomplishment of it that has happened in our lives. Lord, that it would change how we, how we see Christmas and how we talk about Christmas to those that we come into contact with. Father, we pray all of this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. You know, as we talk about Micah, and really as we talk about any of the prophets, we face some problems. And uh, just in how we, how we look and how we study those prophets. And so I, I want to start, I want to begin, not looking specifically at our passage, but just to take a quick look at two of the problems that we see in prophecy um, as we read through it. The first problem is that we see is a prophecy of time. We see first a difficulty with time. As we read through the prophets, one of the things that you're going to struggle with, one of the things that we all struggle with, is what, when is this supposed to happen? Is it supposed to happen immediately, or is it supposed to happen a long time into the future? An analogy that helps me to kind of understand this principle, um, and it's certainly not an analogy that's new with me, but is the idea of a picture or a painting of a mountain. And I've got one up here. And maybe you can see that, hopefully you can see that somewhat well, but in that picture you have different levels. You have the lake that's right there in front of you that's immediate, that you know is close, and then you have a house that's a little bit some ways in the distance, and then behind that you have this great mountain. But the problem with looking at a 2D, 2D picture is that you're unable to see the depth there. You know that the house is beyond the lake. You know that the mountain is beyond the house. But there's no real way for you to know how far those things are. Maybe that house is 100 yards from that, the photographer. Maybe the house is a mile from the photographer. Maybe the mountain is a few hundred yards behind the house. Or maybe it's a few hundred miles behind the house. If you've ever been out to the west, especially if you go into Arizona and New Mexico where it's mostly flat, but then you see these mesas come up or you see the mountains rise. If you're from Missouri especially, your sense of distance is completely off. You're like, oh, wow, that mountain's right there. And the guy that's with you laughs and says, yeah, that mountain's in another state. Like, it's hundreds of miles. You would never make it walking in a day. And you're like, there's no way, it's right there. But our depth perception is off. In the same way, when we look at prophecy, 
it's difficult sometimes for us to judge time. Sometimes the prophecy is immediate. It's something that's going to happen right then and right there. Sometimes when we look at that prophecy, it's very distant and very far away. And even as we read the prophets, we get the sense that at times they don't even know what the Holy Spirit is sharing with them. They don't know the distance into the future. Maybe the Messiah is to come soon. Maybe he's to come right after the exile into Babylon. Maybe he's to come sometime in the distant future. But it's difficult. So we have this problem, this difficulty with time. We also have a difficulty with purpose. Oftentimes when we read the prophets, it's difficult to understand whether that prophecy is for the nation of Israel alone or whether it is for the general world, whether it's for all people. Sometimes we read it and we read a promise and it, it, it's very specific. In fact, when we look at our own text this morning, if you read things like chapter or verse 1, now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against you. With the rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. That prophecy is an immediate prophecy for the people of Israel alone. The same can be said probably for verse 3, though it's a little bit more complex. Therefore he, God, shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor was given birth, has given birth. Does that verse there speak to the birth of the Messiah to come later, or is that verse speaking of God giving up the nation of Israel to judgment, and the birth that's happening there is not the Messiah at all, but rather it's the judgment of God? Yes. There, the answer is difficult. It's hard to understand. It's hard for us to grasp a hold of that. And so we have these two difficulties. And so when we read Micah or when we read any of the prophets, as you do your daily Bible study, I want you to think and grasp and try to answer these two questions. They're two questions that we need to. And as we look here in Micah chapter 5, we need to do the same. And the interesting thing about Micah is the answer to these questions is both. When we think about time and what Micah is writing about, the answer is both. Micah is writing in a time of the kings of both Israel and Judah. Babylon has not yet come and taken over. Judgment has not yet happened on Israel. And so he's writing to warn the people of Israel, you need to stop, you need to turn away, you need to change how you're acting. Because if you don't, judgment is coming. Babylon is coming. Assyria is coming. And they're going to take people away. And he's warning them of that. And yet we find here in chapter 5, he is beginning to write, but this is what's going to happen after that. This is the hope for after the judgment. It's not always going to be judgment. We're not always going to be under discipline. And so as he begins to write chapter 5, it's a both and. It's immediate, in a sense, that after the time of judgment in Babylon, about 70 years, about 100 years from when this is written, the that they're going to come back. That God is going to allow the people of Israel to return to their homeland, to return to the promised land. But it's also a promise to those in the future. That God is going to send a savior. That he's going to send one who is going to free us from not just the captivity of Babylon, but he's going to be one that frees us from the captivity of sin. 
In the same way, not only does it both in terms of time, but it's both in terms of purpose. Yes, it's written, written to Israel. Certainly, it is Israel from whom the Messiah is going to come, from whom this promise is for. It is the Messiah that is going to be the king over Israel, a ruler, as, the, as chat, verse 2 says. So it's for them in that sense. But in another sense, it's for all of us. If you look at the end of that passage, it says that they, the people of Israel, God's people, will dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. It's not just an immediacy of Israel, but now it begins to expand to all of us. And certainly we see the fulfillment of this in the fact that we stand here with the gospel. You know, when you read the Great Commission, and I think we've talked about this a little bit, but when we read the Great Commission, so often we read that and so often we apply it to, you know, to say we are the local, we're, we're, the, we're the Judea, we're the Samaria, we're, we're the right here, and we need to go to the ends of the earth, to places like Mongolia. And certainly that's a fair application, that, that trans, translates to us well, and we do need to do those things. But if you really think about it in the context of the disciples, we are the farthest most reaches. The Great Commission has, in many ways, been happening through us in that we now have the gospel being as about as far away from Jerusalem as you can get. God is accomplishing his purposes. His kingdom is expanding, and we are evidence of that. In the same way, we see here that Jesus' name will be great among all the nations his name will be great in all the earth, and we are the fulfillment in part of this prophecy that now we know the name of Christ. And yet it's still an ongoing thing in that we desire for all men and women, all tongues, all nations, to know Jesus Christ as our Savior. This is why we gather together as Southern Baptists to work cooperatively so that we may send out some of us to go to other places that have yet to hear the name of Christ. And so when we think about the difficulty of prophecy, we think about the difficulty of time, we think about the difficulty of purpose, but sometimes it's both, and both and. And so we're going to, so that's, I, I, wanted to, I wanted to open that up a little bit, because I know for me personally, when I read the prophets, I run into these difficulties, and I run into struggles, and so I wanted to make sure that we laid a little bit of that groundwork together. Let's dig a little bit deeper here, though, as we look into what the prophet specifically is saying. We know that it's both a prophecy for the nation of Israel in their immediate need, but it's also a prophecy for us and for those in the future. And so let's dig in a little bit to what he's saying. The prophet Micah here in chapter 5 is speaking specifically of the Messiah. He's speaking specifically of the Messiah. And he gives us, in particular, three very incredible pictures about what's going to happen. Starting in verse 2 there, he gives us the first one. It says, you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, you are too little to be among the clans of Judah, but from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler of Israel. As we've gone through this in Genesis, as we've gone through this sermon series, in Genesis what we had was a very broad description of, of what was going to happen. That there was going to be a descendant of man, really a descendant of woman. That he would be the one that would, that would end the curse. But we're not really told much more than that. In the law and, in, and, and throughout the, 
the Torah, we see glimpses and hints that the Messiah would come through the Jewish people, through the, through the descendants of Abraham. But we're really not given a whole lot more detail than that. Little pictures here and there of, of that he would be a descendant of Abraham, that he would sacrifice himself, that he would take away the blood through his own blood. Little, little hints, little pictures. As we get into the prophets, though, specifically in Isaiah and even in the Psalms, what we begin to see is, is a much clearer focus as we grow closer to this time. And here in Micah is maybe one of the most clear pictures. The, the understanding and the hope and the desire and the promise that the Messiah, the Savior of Israel, the Savior of the world, would be born in Bethlehem. Unless there be any confusion, he says, O Bethlehem Ephrathah. Ephrathah was uh, probably the best way to explain it is that it was a county. It was a region inside of Israel so that no one can confuse which Bethlehem is being spoken of. One of my wife's biggest pet peeves when we first moved to Missouri, and still is to some extent, is that this state names every city after somewhere else. I can remember the first time that I told my wife that my mom and dad were going to go to California for the weekend, but they'd be back on Sunday afternoon. And she looked at me like I had four heads. She's like, well, sweetheart, I, I don't think that's possible. I was like, California, Missouri. And she's like, what? There's a California, Missouri? It's like, yes, and a Paris, and a Versailles that we pronounce incorrectly every time. Or Nevada. Yeah, uh, we could go on for a while. I remember we sat down one time with a map, and I, the number was staggering how many places we've robbed. In fact, we have a Dallas, we have a Texas county. And the seat is Houston. I mean, that, that should tell you everything you need to know. In the same way, this isn't a new trend, though, that, they, that we name places after other places. There was more than one Bethlehem. And so he wants to be very specific here. He says, Bethlehem of Ephrathah. This is where the Savior is going to be born. This is what's going to happen. And it's an interesting place. I mean, there is nothing about Bethlehem that is really that special. He says, you're too little. You're, you're a blot on the map. You barely make the map. There's nothing militarily significant about Bethlehem. There's nothing economic, economically significant about Bethlehem. It's, it's a, kind of an out-of-the-way, nowhere place. And yet God is going to use that place, the insignificant place, to bring forth a Savior. So like God to use the things that we deem little, the things that we deem unimportant. But for the Jews, this place, yes, it was insignificant. Yes, it was little. But there was another connection. There was another reason that this was special. And that was because Bethlehem was important for one reason. It was important because it was the home place of the King David. It was from the area of Bethlehem that his family had come from. And David, of course, was the king of Israel. I mean, he was the golden king. When he was king, everything was perfect. That, that was when they were really in their, in their midst, in their power. And the people of Israel, when they would have heard this prophecy, they would have thought, ah, this isn't just any ordinary Messiah. This isn't just any ordinary king. This is a king from the lineage from the family of David. This is special. Yeah, it's Bethlehem, and Bethlehem doesn't really amount to much, but 
But man, that David thing, that is important. He gives us another important picture here, the the prophet does. He tells us there at the end of verse 2, he says that this ruler in Israel is coming forth, is from old, from ancient of days. It's an interesting line to put in there. The idea that he's from the old, many scholars connect that to the idea that he is of the Davidic lineage. That he's from the, the family of David. So this is an old king family. This isn't something new that God's creating. But then you have that second phrase, from ancient of days. And there's a little bit of discussion about this, but many scholars, and, and I would include myself in this camp, that ancient days is a reference to before all of eternity. You see, this isn't the coming of just any king. This isn't the coming of a new king. This is the coming of the king. The one who has ruled from the foundation of the earth. Now he himself is coming. He himself will put on flesh. He himself will establish his kingdom. For the Israelites, for the Jews, this was an incredible Incredible declaration that finally God was coming to set things right. And certainly Jesus Christ did that. It wasn't in the way they expected. The Jews, even the disciples, expected for this Messiah, for this king to come and to set up an earthly kingdom, one that would demolish Rome, one that would set free the nation of Israel to do whatever they wanted. And Jesus had to consistently and repeatedly Tell them, look, my kingdom is different. My kingdom is a heavenly kingdom. It's much greater than anything that is on earth. Everything on earth, yeah, all those things are going to be a pass away. The kingdom of Rome eventually passed away. The empire in Mongolia, the great Genghis Khan, eventually even that passed away. All of those things come and go. But my kingdom is eternal. Because I am not just a new king. I am the king. And my kingdom is eternal. My kingdom is forever. It's quite a picture that we get there of who this Savior is. That he's not not something new, not something unplanned, not something unexpected. But it is from the ancient of days, from the beginning of time. A third thing that we see here, not only do we see the, the idea that the Messiah, the Savior, would be born in Bethlehem, and that he would be old, he would be the ancient of days, he would, he would be from the beginning of time and divine, but that he would shepherd his flock. You see there in verse 4, And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. It's an interesting connection, this idea of shepherd. Certainly, we see it carried over into the New Testament. Again and again, Jesus talks about his people being his sheep and how he cares for them. That he's not some just dictator cruelly pushing people around, but, but there is compassion to the point that he lays down his life for his sheep. He sacrifices himself that they may have life. Not only is there a connection to the New Testament in Christ, but We see this connection in the Old Testament as well, in the prophet Ezekiel, who would talk to the 
those that were in power over the people of Israel, he would declare that they had been set up as under shepherds, under the great shepherd God, but they had abandoned their post. They had left the sheep, they had left the people to the wolves, they had allowed them to be devoured, they had been corrupted, they had uh, stolen from the sheep even. And Ezekiel proclaims that there is coming a day when the shepherd would come, the true shepherd would come, and he would take care of his sheep himself. No longer, no longer would they have to go through corrupt priests. No longer would they have to go through those that were looking out for their own good. But rather, God himself would step in and say, these are mine, and I will care for them. Oh, that we would understand these promises and the fulfillment of these promises. A Savior to be born in Bethlehem. Divine in His very nature. Eternal in His existence. And kind in His rule and His reign. To be protective over His people. I love the way this passage ends as well in verse 5. At the beginning of verse 5 it says, And there, and he shall be their peace. He shall be their peace. This great Messiah, this great Savior to be born in Bethlehem, eternal and divine in his very being, a King of kings, a Lord of lords, who would protect his people, shall be their peace. We don't always see that in the governments around us, do we? We don't always see that the kings have the best thought of their people in mind. We don't always see that the government is there for peace. And in fact, many times what we see in our history and, and even in our day today is that governments often have very opposite motives. But not our Christ, not our Messiah. He brings peace. How so? First, he brings peace with God. Romans 5 verse 10 says, for, while if, for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. Oh friends, I, I don't know that we often remember that before we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we were on the wrong side of God's justice. That we had committed treason to the Most High King. And the punishment for treason, no matter what nation you live in, the punishment for treason is death. We were under that consequence. We were enemies of God, not because of anything on His part, but because of what we had done. And yet this Savior, this Messiah, steps in to bring in reconciliation, to bring peace. If we will trust in Him, if we will put our faith in Him, no longer do we have to find ourselves enemies of God, but now we can find ourselves being called the children of God. Now, not only do we not find ourselves guilty, but in fact we find ourselves innocent based on His record, not our own. Oh, that we have peace with God now, no longer fearing His judgment, no longer fearing His wrath. But now we can experience life. Let me put it in another way. Imagine, imagine for a moment 
Imagine for a moment that your own children, children that you love, children that, that you've cared for, children that you've raised up, imagine that someone murdered them. What would be your feelings towards that individual? There would be anger, sure. There would be the desire for justice, sure. Would there be a desire for adoption? That is what the Lord has done. We were enemies of God. We ourselves were the ones that betrayed Him. It was for our sins that He died. And yet the Father of all creation looks at us and desires adoption. That we may be His children. Oh, the peace of God. The peace of this Messiah. Not only does he give us peace with God, but he gives us peace for trouble to come. We see there in the last moments of Jesus' life as he's talking with the disciples in John chapter 14. He says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give. Let your hearts not be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. Christ speaks to his disciples and says, look, there's going to be times that this isn't easy. What's going to happen in the next few hours, in the next few days, it's going to be bad. The crucifixion is no easy thing. The separation there is no easy thing. And in the time to come, he had warned them, look, there will be those that hate you because they hated me. There's going to be persecution. There's going to be people that, that wrong you. There's going to be people that do difficult things. We're not promised that once we're saved that everything suddenly is a bed of roses. In fact, for many of us, what we find is that this road is narrow and it is hard. But oh, that we have a Savior and a Shepherd who gives us peace for the trouble ahead for the trouble we find ourselves in, that he never abandons us, that we may find ourselves in the valley of death, that we may find ourselves in the shadow, that we have a shepherd who longs to bring us to better places, who is there beside us every moment, caring for us, meeting our needs, mending our wounds, that we are not alone. He brings us peace for trouble. And he brings us peace to come. In that same passage, just a little bit earlier, John 14, verse 3, he tells the disciples, I go and prepare a place for you. I will come again and I will take you myself, that you, that where I am, you may be also. It's not just this God, is, Jesus Christ, our Messiah, has reconciled us to God, bringing us to peace with this God that we were once enemies with. Not only has he given us peace for the trouble that we find ourselves in now, but he gives us and promises us great peace to come. That when the time of this earth is finished, that he will return for his children and he will bring us home to a place with no more suffering and no more grief, no more illness, no more cancer, no more loss. What a great promise. And here's the thing, that as we look at Micah, and as we think about these promises of peace, 
as we think about these assurances that God gives us, that he completes his promise. And how do we know that? Because the Savior was born in Bethlehem. Because it was accomplished. God followed through on his promise. That was a truly where Jesus Christ was born. And as we go through the rest of, of these prophecies, as we look at all the things that God said, that this would happen, and that this would happen, and that this would happen, that that is exactly the way it occurred. And there is no mistaking that. And so that as we look at those promises that he accomplished, though unlikely they may have seemed, we can look at the promises that lie ahead of us that have yet to be fulfilled and know that he will bring them through. That we will know this peace that he speaks of. That we will know this home that he has prepared. I pray that as we go through the Christmas season, as we worship this baby in a manger, as we celebrate with family and with friends, that we would remember the promises that were, that have been accomplished, and that we would remember the promises that are, that are yet to come, and that it would change how we worship, that it would change the stories that we give. Brothers and sisters, I, I pray that it would enlighten us a fire to tell people about peace, because we live in a world that needs it. Friend, maybe you're here and you've never known that peace. You've never known what it is to have peace with God. You've never known what it is to have peace in in a situation, to know peace when, when life is chaos, to know peace when disease strikes, to know peace when loss comes. That's a foreign concept. This morning God offers an invitation for you to come and to know the King of Kings, to know the Savior, to know the Good Shepherd. It's simple. We admit that we were the ones that committed treason. We were the ones that broke the relationship first. We have done wrong. And we've all done that. All of us can admit that at some point in our life that, that we took a misstep. And that because of that, we've been separated from God. And we just admit that and say, God, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. To believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he was the Messiah that Micah speaks of. That he came and he lived a perfect life, that he died on the cross and he rose three days later. For our sake, to pay a penalty that we could not pay, so that we might have peace. And then to confess him as Lord, to say, look, you're the boss. I'll go where you want me to go, and I'll do what you want me to do. Because in saving our life, he has earned our devotion and our love. And so we follow him, whatever it may take. If you'll do that this morning, if you'll, you'll do those three things, admit, believe, confess, then I promise you he will save and you will know the peace that Micah speaks of. You will know the Savior that he promises. You'll know the reason that we really celebrate Christmas. The coming of our Savior. The birth of the King in Bethlehem. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up. And we're just going to have a time of response. Just a time for, for those of us that have been saved. That, that do know this peace. That do know the King. For us to lift up our voices and to worship. And for those of you that maybe have never done that, for you to, to come before the Lord God, to come before Jesus Christ and accept, I pray, the invitation that he offers us all. Let me pray.